This is Daniel Gallardo, and you're listening to the Tenkara Cast, a podcast about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. In the Tenkara Cast, we'll be sharing information on techniques, history, philosophy, and Tenkara stories from anglers all over the world. This podcast is brought to you by Tenkara Yosei, introducing Tenkara outside of Japan since 2009. It's only possible we create content such as this podcast and videos because of your support. So we thank you so very much for purchasing Tenkara Yosei rods, lines, and flies. I hope you enjoy learning more about the simple method of fly fishing. Welcome back to another episode of the Tenkara Cast.、Uh, today I'm、uh, very excited to have two people joining me uh, in the uh, recording of this podcast. We're going to have a nice conversation. I've got with me here Bart Lombardo、uh, from Panfish on the Fly. And we also have a lot of you already know him, TJ Ferreira. Who's our customer support、uh, director? And、um, we are on the road. So, today, one of the few episodes of the Tenkara cast that I'm not recording from the office, we are in. Where, where are we? We are in lovely Lawrence. Lawrenceville. Uh, Lawrenceville? Is yeah, that I think it's Lawrenceville, considered Georgia? Lawrenceville, at,、yeah. uh, Georgia. Yeah, it's, it's kind of confusing because the fly fishing show is in Duluth. But they call it the Atlanta show. Yeah. <laughs> And we're staying in a house in Lawrenceville, <laughs> Georgia. Yeah. And uh, we uh, dragged uh, Bart down here with us. So, Bart, so you joined us at the, you've been helping us actually for a few years at the fly fishing shows.、Um, do you like it? Oh, I love it. I, I love the shows. I love being on the other side of the aisle、uh, when, I, when I help you guys out. I've been.、Um, You know, going to the show in New Jersey since it first started,、uh, I haven't missed one of them. But it's been、uh, real interesting the last couple of years helping、uh, Tank R USA out. So I make TJ go to these shows. Why do you want to help us? <laughs> Why do you want to be there? <laughs> well, I, I, love,、uh, I love spreading the word about、uh, Tank R. I was a very early adopter of Tank R. I've been、uh, basically using your. Your equipment since 2009 when you first introduced it into the United States. And、uh, I'm just very excited about spreading the word. Oh, that's great. I,、uh, no, I really, really appreciate your help over the years and、uh, you committing to helping us because you are retired. I am. I am you, retired.、Uh, you could just be home kind of sunbathing in New Jersey right now. I will. <laughs> <laughs> And、uh, yeah, so no, thanks so much for joining us. It's,、uh, it's really fun. Bart, I was telling TJ yesterday, like, Bart one day has to write a book of short stories because you have so many wonderful stories and you've kept us so entertained this entire time. Yeah, we've been laughing quite a bit at what stories he has to tell of his youth yeah,、so. and even his adulthood. <laughs> I don't know if there's a distinct separation between the two, one just kind of flowed right into the other. So we mentioned that you're retired. And、uh, what did you used to do before you started devoting so much more time to fishing? Well, I was a, I'm a retired police captain. I, I worked、um, 30 years on the job. And I don't know if I、uh, spend any more time fishing now than I did before. I, I spent an awful lot of time fishing before as well. So、uh, I'm enjoying my retirement and I do get to fish a little bit more.、Um, but I also have been doing.、Uh, 
a, a little bit more writing. Um, I have the Panfish on the Fly website blog, and, and that's been keeping me busy. It's been uh, very popular with a lot of folks, and it, it keeps you busy. Nice. And uh, Panfish on the Fly, I'm assuming the, the title of the blog is pretty obvious, but tell us a little bit more about what you write. Well, the my whole, uh, I had a blog previous to uh, Panfish on the Fly, which and the whole premise of the blog was I had a lot of friends that were from other parts of the country that were never really exposed to trap fishing. I had a lot of friends in Mississippi and Texas and in the uh, Southwest, and they were always uh, very interested in my exploits as a trout fisherman. So I started a blog called The Jersey Angler. And, but here in New Jersey, the, our trout fishing is really a spring, fall, or winter activity. During the summer, our waters get uh, far too warm. They will support trout, but they're usually uh, a little too warm for to stress the fish during the, the summertime. So uh, you need something else to do to keep yourself busy if you're going to fish 12 months out of the year. And that's where uh, the panfish and bass and other uh, warm water species come in. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's interesting because uh, I have this tremendous knowledge of panfish and bass and, you know, in general, which we're going to get into today. So today's episode is uh, really kind of trying to cover a little bit more on the tips and techniques techniques for uh, panfish fishing. But you have a tremendous background with cold water fisheries. I mean, most of the time we seem to talk about your trips to, you know, a lot of different trout waters. Um, how much of your time do you split between the two? Well, as I said before, in, in New Jersey, we have our, our trout season is, is really just a, a fall, winter, and spring activity. Uh, it, it really kind of wraps up around June, although we do have rivers that will support fish year-round. Uh, they warm up to the point that if you were to catch fish during the summer months, you'd put a lot of undue stress on them, and even though you may release them, you know, they would be floating belly up in an hour or two just from the stress mm -hmm. of the fight. So uh, I've always been a, a, a warm water addict. I, that's how I cut my teeth fly fishing. Mm -hmm. You know, I started out fishing for, uh, for panfish and bluegills, just like uh, mo mo many, many anglers have done. Yeah, like myself uh, too. Yeah. I eventually graduated to uh, trout and salmon and you know, they're, they're a passion of mine as well, and I travel all over the country fishing for them. But um, I, I think these these little fish, they, they hold a real special place in my heart. I, I enjoy fishing for them, always have. And we have TJ here as well today, sitting across the table from us. We all have a nice glass of wine that Bart's wife made, and today we're having a nice Pinot Noir. Nice. It's just a beautiful, easy-drinking, like smooth wine. That's just wonderful. And they're so easy drinking that yesterday we learned that we can get drunk kind of quick. <laughs> <laughs> but TJ, you also do a fair amount of panfish uh, fishing uh, yep. with Tenkata. Um, tell us a little bit more about your experiences with uh, panfish. Why, when do you do it? And... Yeah, I live up in Grass Valley, California, and it's up in the foothills. And there's quite a few ponds up there, and there is one in our semi-private community um, and they have bass and bluegill. So I'm, I'm trying to remember what first fish I caught on Tenkara. It might have been a trout up in the coastal uh, northern Sierras or uh, northern California. But I think right after that, I caught quite a few bluegill. And that's really where I learned how to land fish because you can catch a lot of bluegill and sunfish on Tenkara rods. So I started learning how to 
uh, hook set with them and bring them in and release them. And I just had a blast. So yeah, bluegill are great. And so uh, ponds up in uh, very uh, Northern California by Grass Valley, I, I catch uh, sunfish and bluegill, especially uh, in wintertime. Our trout season closes November 15th until the last Saturday of April. And I would have to travel basically up into the cold snow to fish for trout. And I'd rather play around with some bass and bluegill locally. So but that's a great point. And we got to, you know, I, I never really thought too much about it. But bluegill or panfish in general is totally a terrific practice fish. Yep. Because uh, oftentimes, especially when we're talking about sunfish and bluegill and, you know, those uh, crappy and so forth, you can cast almost any fly. There's a lot of ponds that are just filled up with them. Yep. And just get your experience, get your hook set. Hook set, landing, landing um, releasing, yeah. the whole bit. And it's uh, and when you latch onto one that's six or seven inches, which is a pretty good sized sunfish, they definitely fight stronger than trout. Uh -huh. The biggest I ever caught was about a foot long. I called it a pizza pie bluegill because this thing was round like a piece of pizza. And I thought I had a brick on and it was bending my rod tremendously. And I'm this is awesome. So yeah, I love bluegill. Yeah, and I haven't talked myself in this podcast. I don't think we've done any. Might have done an episode about lake fishing, but I haven't really talked much about pinfish in general or warm water species. And yes, yeah, I'm mostly, primarily, probably ninety percent of my fishing is for trout. But in Colorado, where I live, it's uh, you know we have seasonality issues with trout fishing as well, where. Um, you know, oftentimes, well, in winter, you can still find some open waters, but, you know, there's a lot of open lakes. And then, like, right after winter, towards the end of winter, we have a runoff season. Streams are blown out, and I'll go catch, you know, bluegill. We have crappie. And then I get into the beyond penfish size once in a while. It's carp as well, just warm mm -hmm. water species. Yep, yep. Um, I've never caught a crappie. Is it uh, fight like a sunfish or bluegill? Same type of side use their side and fatness to kind of pull? They they don't really have that, that circular fight that the bluegills do where they continually they try and swim in a circle, but the, the fight is similar because they do use that that uh, wide, broad body shape to their advantage. Yeah, I'd like to try one. I don't know of any up where I live, so I, that may be some place I have to travel to catch something like that. Yeah, one of the reasons that I love these fish so much is because it's just their accessibility. They're everywhere. Um, you know, I'm about an hour and 15 minutes from my nearest trout stream, but I can be on any number of warm water lakes and ponds around my house in 15, 20 minutes. I could be on the water fishing. Some lakes as close as five minutes. So, you know, trout fishing for me is a, it's a day long commitment. I have to dedicate a big block of time to get out on the river and enjoy a, you know, a day of trout fishing. As far as panfish and other warm water species, I, I could Grab is free hour here or there. Yeah. Um, I always keep a couple tank car rods tucked into the backseat of my truck, and I've been known to walk into a dentist's office thinking of bluegill <laughs> because there's a, a nearby pond, and I show up a half hour for my appointment. I got to do something to kill the time, so I break out a rod, and I'm into fish within minutes. Awesome. Yeah, my wife's got a uh, pond up by the library where she works, and they've got sunfish in there. And so if I have to wait for her for like longer than a half an hour, I run up the hill and I go after sunfish. It's awesome. Yeah, that, I think that's uh, the thing. I mean, there's so many. So like oftentimes I get asked people, oh, where can I find trout? And in general, I mean, it, it depends a lot on where in the country you are. You're looking for streams, but then you have to drive up a little a lot farther. 
But whenever you look at a map of a lot of like urban areas and it's just like almost any part of the United States that there's ponds, there's going to be some kind of pinfish. And it's just kind of a, and it's kind of always surprising. There's a dog, there's a, a lake close to home where there's a dog park. And sometimes I'll take my dog there, especially during the runoff season, and I'll bring a rod along. People see me fishing and they, they had no idea there's fish in there. And it's just, you know, if they're not anglers, but they're just like everywhere. And I'm not sure how they all get to spread to so many lakes. But <laughs> yeah, and it's weird. Through my little community, there's a um, year-round creek that uh, goes through it. And the water does get low in the summertime. And up by the pond where I normally fish, there's bluegill. There's no trout in it whatsoever. Bluegill bass. Somehow, there must be during the winter time that some of these bluegill and bass get into my local creek because I've caught little wild rainbows, bluegill, and bass in this uh, fast-running small creek. So, interesting when you can catch all three in one scoop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know these fish have been aggressively stocked throughout the country, but I believe there's also, um, I read somewhere that they're, they're also spread naturally by birds. Birds walk through you know, wading birds like yeah. herons and egrets, they walk through the nests and the eggs adhere to their feet and they get spread from one watershed to another. And so uh, Mother Nature does a good job distributing these fish as well. So would you say that every pond has fish? I, I think most do, um, at least in my experience in my area. I, I don't think I've ever come across a body of water that doesn't contain these fish. If it's a year-round uh, body water. There are some, you know, seasonal uh, lakes and ponds that are around. They're usually meant for dealing with drainage and overflow, and you may not find fish in those areas. But if it's an established water system, chances are that they have these fish swimming in them. And how do they survive the winter? Because the little pond I fish in is slightly fed by some seasonal creeks, and every time I go back, there's sunfish and bluegill and bass in this pond. And I'm amazed that they can survive frozen over ponds. Oh, absolutely. They're um, actually, I think they're one of the most popular species sought after by ice fishermen. They, they do feed year round. Um, you can catch them in you know, water, whether it's covered with ice or just very cold. They, they do, they are a little bit more sluggish in the colder temperatures, but they, they do feed year round and oh. they're quite often caught through the ice. So let's talk a little bit more specifics. What, uh, Bart, what's your favorite, let's start with rods, I guess. We can talk about rods, lines, and flies that are used in Tenkata. Um, so actually, before we get into that, uh, you fly fish with the reel as well as with Tenkata? I, I do. I, um, I am not exclusively a uh, Tenkara fisherman. I, I do fish with uh, Western gear, but I find over the years, that um, more and more of my time is being spent with a Tenkara rod in my hand as opposed to a, a Western fly rod. You know, in fact, in my last couple years out in Montana, I spent most of the month of July out there. I have not picked up a Western fly rod. It's all my fishing has been exclusively with uh, Tenkara. And that's starting to uh, be the case with my warm water exploits as well. So do you find, uh, you know, before again we get into the specifics of how you do it, um, you know, in mountain streams and rivers, um, I always say that that's where Tenkata shines the most. It's really hard to compare, you know, Western setup, I think, with Tenkata because you have that long rod, light line, you can get on the other side of the currents and that kind of thing. But when we're thinking of warm water species, we're talking about lakes. Do you find that there's a lot of limitations or do you miss having a reel sometimes? What, is, what are yeah, your thoughts on that? There are... Um... 
there are times when there are some limitations to using uh, Tenkara equipment on, on lakes and ponds. First and foremost is overhead cover. If you were fishing a, a watershed that has a lot of trees and you're fishing from shore, a very long rod can become very difficult to, uh, to manage if you, if you have to deal with overhead limbs and trees. So it really requires an ideal set of circumstances, uh, open shorelines that are not going to inhibit uh, your back cast in any way. You don't want to um, get your, your rod up into the trees because that is the quickest way to end up making a call to customer service is uh, ah. having that rod tangled up on a, a tree limb and then all of a sudden you end up hooking a fish. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are some limitations in regards to that. Ideal, because most of these fish are oriented to shoreline structure, uh, the length of the Tankara cast is usually not a liability. You can usually reach these fish with most Tankara rods. Uh, I do a lot of fishing from a kayak, so mm -hmm. in that situation, the uh, Tankara rod is a perfect tool because I'm no longer limited by overhead cover. I could make a uh, traditional steep Tankara cast to present the fly without any worries about uh, snagging the rod and, and overhead limbs. Uh, the accuracy that uh, Tankara equipment provides as far as casting accuracy is a huge boon for uh, targeting, you know, presenting your flies tight to shoreline cover. So it really does work well there. There's, um, you know, there is also a concern at times with, you know, there's also other fish that share the waters with panfish, bluegill, crappie, uh, and some of the other sunfish species. Most of these waters are inhibited, are you know, inhabited by largemouth bass or smallmouth bass, chain pickerel, northern pike, um, and you do occasionally hook up with these fish as well. So, as far as having a, a rod selection, I like to select a rod that gives me the best fight out of the panfish, but also gives me the ability to deal with these larger predators when they show themselves. So, which rod is that? My favorite is the Ito. Um, I, I think that rod gives, it still allows you to feel and appreciate the fight of a smaller fish, but the added length of the rod, I think, gives you the leverage that you need to, uh, to deal with a larger fish. If I am out in, in waters where I, I know I'm going to encounter larger fish like largemouth bass or uh, large chain pickerel, then at times I'll, I'll use a rod like the Imago. It's, it has a little bit more backbone, and uh, it'll it'll deal with those fish quite effectively. But you do kind of sacrifice a little bit on uh, the fight of smaller fish, which yeah, you're out definitely. there targeting to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ito is the one that I carry with me as well for the pinfish. The the fourteen foot plus reach, and uh, yeah, the tip very very sensitive to small fish, and then does have like we've seen a photo of a twenty nine inch uh, pike that was laying on the beach. I mean, that kind of says something, I guess. What about you, TJ? Sato. I love the Sato, and I use it most of the time. And talking about having a rod that um, can handle the smaller sunfish, but yet be capable to land a bass at the same time because you might be in equal water. Have you ever had it to where you catch a small bluegill, and out comes Mr. Bass, and he swallows the bluegill? Absolutely. And you've got two fish on? Absolutely. That is a hoot. I did that once, and I'm like, holy moly, this poor little bluegill didn't fare too well, but... 
I had both of them. <laughs> did you bring it in? I got the the bluegill in, but the bass did come off because yeah. there was nothing to uh, keep them on. He did let it go. Um, so I've had that happen to me once, and I got the bass really close, but yeah, like it saw me and it's yeah. <laughs> You know, another rod to, that I'd like to mention is because these fish are, you know, they do run on the smaller side. And if you were to use a, a lighter rod, a rod like the Roto, uh, you would get the fight that you get out of these fish is incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, you feel every head shake, every mm -hmm. throb, every vibration, and it gives you a whole new appreciation of these these small little fish mm -hmm. on uh you know, on a light rod like that. Yeah, ounce for ounce or pound for pound. I think uh, sunfish are, I, you know, it's funny. I really just thought of them all as bluegill before. I didn't classify sunfish and bluegill. They're in the same type of family, but uh, oh, they are. Fish. Yeah, yeah, they're the best fighting fish I've ever caught. And it feels like you've got a handful on your hands when you catch one. Where some trout, you get a, a, a good fight, but then they kind of settle down where Bluegill just don't settle down until you finally get it into your hand. And even then, they go crazy, so. Have you ever had a fish that uh, you were, that Tenkato is not a good match for, like, or that you, you got overpowered by uh, the fish or something? Um, not in regards to panfish. I think it's the perfect tool for panfish, but um, I have tangled with a number of uh, larger warm water species. Um, actually, probably the most notable one this last past spring was a large white koi that was about uh, probably close to 15 pounds. Oh, wow. Um, I, I hooked that fish on the Ito with a, on, on a small soft tackle and uh, that, it, that didn't end well. Yeah. Is, that like, is it like a carp? Like yeah, a brick? Yeah, it was, it was a giant white koi with these bright red cheeks and someone must have let this yeah. fish go and it got too big for their pond at home and they they let it go in a neighborhood lake. and uh, I'll see that every once in a while. You'll be in there and you'll see this big white thing going through the water. It's like, what is that? And yeah, somebody put, probably put one in there. So uh, what was the end of the story with that one? Uh, it, it was, uh, it wanted to go somewhere in a hurry and it did. Uh, <laughs> there wasn't much I could do to stop it. Did it snap the tippet or did the rod break? Oh, no, it didn't happened? break the rod. It, it snapped the tippet. Okay. Yeah, it was a yeah. uh, fishing 5X tippet and... Uh, it just could not stop it. Yeah, that's that's, huge. that's yeah. amazing. It's yeah. a big fish, big fish. Um, now, what about lines? Uh, do you have preference for the type of line or length of line that you like to use? I, I do. I I lean towards the level lines. Um, one line that I don't recommend, at least in most of the warm waters that I fish, is a, a braided line. A lot of the waters that I fish have... Uh, very high algae contents at some time of the year, and the you know, braided lines can pick up a lot of this debris and algae, and um, they just require a lot of cleaning and maintenance. So I like to stick to, uh, I'm a big fan of level lines. This past season, I started playing around with the new tapered lines, and uh, the tapered nylon lines, and I've been very pleased with them as well. They, they seem to work very well. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good tip. I never thought too much about it because I've been using level lines for so long. But yeah, that, that would require a little bit more maintenance. Do you have any preferences, TJ? I, um, I like to use all three lines, but I definitely prefer level lines for some reason. Just my casting stroke, I zip them out there. And my pond does have a lot of weeds. And I've had a braided line before where it seemed to catch up on things a little bit more, where the level line, just I can pull through a, a thicket of weed a little easier. So yeah, level line for ponds and for me. And uh, what about length of line? 
Do you have any preferences, either of you? Well, for me, if I'm if I'm fishing from a uh, kayak or fishing from a shoreline where casting is not a problem, I, I do tend to fish a longer line than I would for for trout. Um, I, I kind of push things to its its limit at times. Uh, you know, sometimes using a line that's uh, you know, it may be two times the length of the rod. Mm-hmm. But most often, um, I would say that my rod, my line length is uh, probably a rod and a half in length. Mm-hmm. That's that's probably my, my standard, just so I could get uh, get a little distance on the cast when I need it, and uh, it's it's usually not a problem with casting as long as I have. The room. I find that it helps with the even the landing and the fish too, because you just kind of if you when you have a shorter line he tends to make this like tighter arc on the rod absolutely whereas if you have a longer line the rod stays a little bit more open when you're actually playing the fish and that gives a you know just a fish gets tired out there and when you start hand lining it they're already kind of tired and you bring them in faster yeah that that longer line also gives me the ability to stand a little bit farther from the water's edge mm-hmm. you know a lot of these fish as i mentioned before they do orient to shoreline structure and at times they're very very close to the shoreline and if you march right up to that shoreline and start casting just like on a trout stream uh, you know we often step on water that we should be fishing and uh, that longer line allows me to stand off from the shoreline a little bit and, and cover that shoreline area first before moving up to the edge of the water's edge and then making cast to cover further further distances out. And then you mentioned 5X tippet. Is that your standard? Uh, on, I, I will fish 4X um, is probably more often than 5X in, in warm water, only because I, I do tend to run into larger fish from time to time, and I am fishing around structures. So there's there's woody debris and plant stalks, and you know even a, even a good-sized bluegill can really take control of the situation and, and bring you into lily pad stems or, you know, into a tree limb. So I like to use this heavy tippet I can get away with without risking damage to the rod. Mm-hmm. And TJ, use a, what about lantern line for you? Yeah, 3.5 level, 12 to 15 feet, typically with the sato, and two to three foot of tippet. And in the case of pond fishing, I do not mind my level line being on the water, oh, sure. yeah. I'll reach out further than normal and I'll actually typically, if the sunfish are a little skittish, which they're normally not, I'll let the fly sink a foot or two or three and I can still kind of see it. And I'll let the line in the water and bluegill and sunfish are not bashful. They're not afraid of the line too much. They they start congregating in little pods and you'll see all of a sudden, you get three or four of them interested in your fly and the bigger one will go and slam it. So. Yeah, 12 to 15 foot of line I like, and I put some on the water. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and uh, actually, we didn't ask, did I ask you about the length of the tippet that you use? Um, I'm in the same boat. Uh, about three feet of tippet is, is yeah. about the max I'll use, and I have absolutely <laughs> no problem with the line on the water. In fact, I'll often um, fish uh, Kabari-style flies or soft tackles submerge quite a bit and that's one of the reasons why i like the level line because it will it will sink yeah and um you know at times you know i like to fish these flies at some pretty good depths and uh, i'll i'll treat that level line just like i would a, a sinking fly line and allow it to to settle into the water so i'll come back into the flies in a minute but you kind of started touching a little bit on the technique uh you know which kind of made me think of ways the way that i fish in a lake is completely different from how i fish in a stream um, 
So like, for example, one of my favorite techniques usually, uh, there's a couple, but I like skating the fly sometimes if the fish are really active on the surface, but laying the line on the water completely and just waiting sometimes 20 seconds, depending on the fly, 30 seconds, just waiting for the fly to go as deep as it can and then twitching the fly a couple of times or let it sink and then just pull it like a streamer. Do you have a favorite technique when you're uh, fishing? I think it depends on the time of year and the temperature of the water. If, if I was to go out fishing, if I had open water now in, in New Jersey, and I hope to get some open water soon, um, for, for cold weather, early season, late season, uh, one of my favorite techniques is to make a long cast with a, uh, a small fly and allow that fly to, uh, to settle in the water, to sink slowly. And I actually watch where my level line enters the water, to watch that piece of line like a hawk. And any, any twitching, any movement, these fish will also take a fly as it's, as it's sinking with no animation, with no movement. And I catch a lot of fish by just casting out, letting the fly settle, and watching that, that level line where it enters the water for any kind of indication of a strike. And then if you see a twitch or if the line starts to move suspiciously, just come tight to it. And nine times out of ten, you're rewarded with a fish on the other end. Mm -hmm. What about you, TJ? Well, how do you fish it? Yeah, so um, I try to actually have a kabari that's uh, with a white front towards the eye so I can actually see it a good mm. foot or two below. So it kind of like the, yeah. essentially what gets hidden by the reverse hackle? Yep. Like just the head? That's yeah, really the white idea. head. So that's, uh, mm. I'm a one fly guy and my fly has white on the front. Mm -hmm. So I design it so I can see it. And I can see it about two feet under. It starts getting murky after that. Uh, but during the cold season, they're typically low. They're not coming up to the top. So I let it sink for as long as I feel I'm not going to really get stuck in the weeds. And then I'll slowly start pulsing it to the top of the surface. And normally I'll catch one there. And uh, But if it's summertime and it's sunny and they're coming right up to the top, it's funny. You'll cast out there and you'll see five to ten bluegill all surrounding your little kabari that's in the water. And the fastest one wins the worm. <laughs> Comes up and snags it. It's it's funny watching them all attack a fly. Mm -hmm. And they're timid. They'll kind of sit around the fly and one will get a little close and all of a sudden the bigger one typically would come and slam it and take it. Nice. So you started talking about the fly. So since you started talking about your fly, you're like putting a little white spot on the, on the head so you can see it as it sinks. Uh, is that the only fly you use, or do you try different flies? Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about your fly I'm, selection. I've been one fly practically from day one, so I always use my same fly that I tie all the time, and um, yeah, it works great. And is that the Siberian? Uh, nope, the salt and pepper. Salt and pepper. Or the Shiokusho. Shiokusho. <laughs> uh, uh, kabari, which is salt and pepper kabari. So white front, black back, that's where you get the salt and pepper. Uh -huh. I've got a black and white hackle that I tie into it, so it's all black and white. And I just felt that if they're harping on white, they'll see the white. If they're harping on black, they go mm. for the black. Mm. So I have both colors in there for the fish to hopefully be attracted to one of them. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I kind of like having a couple of flies in my box that are contrasting. Like one is black, one is white. But yeah, like I, I would imagine from a fish point of view, they might be keyed in on a white or, or like just a light color right. or a black. So that uh, that's a great idea. That's why Aramano Kabari might be a good match because it's light, but it's got a little bit of darkness to it too. Mm -hmm. um, so I we, we sell a lot of Aramano Kabari, so it's a good match too for a one fly. 
And I'm assuming that Bart's going to tell us a little bit more about flies. Maybe not. Maybe you just use one fly, but oh. tell us a little bit more about it. <laughs> I, I, am, I am a fly tire. Um, so I, I do not just stick to one particular pattern. In fact, um, I have far too many flies than I'll ever use. But I enjoy fly tying. So um, fly fishing gives me a, an opportunity to, to use these patterns. So for, for panfish, I do, I do enjoy using uh Kabari style flies. Uh, in fact, during the last couple seasons, one of the most effective warm water patterns that um, that I fished. It's a really strange uh, fly that was developed by Harry Murray. He uh, is a fly shop owner from Edinburgh, Virginia, and he developed a fly called the James Wood Special. And this fly was an adaptation of a uh, bonefish fly, I think from the 1940s, 1950s. And it's a really bizarre looking fly it has a yellow chenille body with a sparse white bucktail wing and a bright blue head and it was tied to design it was designed to imitate a uh, baby bluegill or baby, baby sunfish and to my eye this fly looks nothing like a bluegill or a sunfish but the fish seem to have a, a different opinion of it and they seem very attracted to that particular color scheme so I, I shrunk that pattern down and I created a Kabari style fly out of it. Uh, it has a bright blue head, a white hackle tied in a reverse style with a yellow thread body. And, and that is a absolute killer on, on panfish of all types, whether it's crappie, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, mm -hmm. you know, they all seem to really like that color combination. But I fish uh, a lot of standard Kabari patterns. Um, I really enjoy fishing traditional soft tackle patterns for, for panfish. Uh, they're probably some of my most effective flies. And I will actually fish a lot of, uh, when, when conditions are right, I'll fish a lot of topwater flies. Um, I've created some, some flies over the years that are light enough to cast on a tankara rod, but still provide good surface action. And um, so I, I run the gamut from, from fishing small streamers, to uh, top water to subsurface flies, uh, I'll fish everything on a tankara rod. So Does size matter? It's it's really I you're I'm always surprised at the size of a fly that these fish can fit in their mouths. Yeah. Um, I've I've caught some very very large bluegill while fishing exclusively for largemouth bass. Um, I will traditionally uh, fish flies as large as size six. Um, and have no problems taking uh, large panfish on these flies. Mm -hmm. But when I'm really limited when fishing a um, tankara rod, you know, you are somewhat limited to the size of the fly that you can use. So uh, when fishing tankara, my flies tend to run on the small side. So I'll, I'll try to make sure to, or I will make sure that I post a link to your website, Panfish on the Fly, on the tankariusa.com forward slash podcast uh, page so you can see. Uh, more of Bart's posts, and I'll try to find a photo of that James Wood fly as well. I actually uh, can uh, get a photo to you. I got a great photo. Perfect. So we'll it, so. get that and post it on our website, and maybe we'll try to find some more flies that Bart uses so people can refer to those as well. Yeah, because I don't have much of a fly selection. When I go, it's like usually the, you know, just the standard, you know, Tenkata flies that I always carry, the ones that we sell on our website. If I kind of find my way into other flies, I'll use them as well. So like last year, my friend Tim back in Boulder, 
he turned me on to this fly called the headstand, I believe it's called. Are you familiar with that one? Um, I believe I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a cool fly, kind of rides upside down with the hook facing up. And he introduced me to that fly when we went carp fishing. And uh, we went to this canal close to home and mostly we're targeting carp, but we can't see anything. The water is really, really murky. And I catch my first fish and it was a weird kind of pull. Um, and I was using a headstand fly, but the first fish that I caught today was a very large bass. It was like five to six pound bass and completely different tug from a carp <laughs> very much. But, uh, and so he worked on the bass and he worked on a carp a little bit later that day. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, on our page on Facebook, I made a live video when I was playing one of these fish. I was like, hey, look, you worked. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I, I do notice that, though, when I use smaller flies, I catch a lot of small sunfish and bluegill. Mm. As soon as I put a size 8 or 6 on, those fish become bigger. So I don't know if the little guys tend to stay away or the big guy sees that bigger one, but the biggest sunnies I catch, 8 to 12 inch, have always been on a big size eight oki kabari or something a little bigger mm -hmm. and uh, so if you want to catch a big one yeah i think the big ones really attract the big guys might be a great tip do you find the same thing Mike? yeah i do um i again as i said i fish a lot of uh, size eight a lot of size six flies and i catch a lot of uh very sizable panfish on, on these flies and the I, th I think you'll still get hits from the smaller fish yeah. but they physically have a difficult time getting that fly in their mouth they so, do uh, but yep. yeah. So a larger fly definitely will produce larger fish. Cool. <laughs> well, what other tips can we uh, give people uh, in terms of panfish or warm water fishing uh, in general, maybe? Is there anything else that... Well, the one thing I'd like to add, if you're introducing somebody to uh, car or fly fishing for the first time, uh, putting a car rod in their hands and putting them on a bluegill pond is probably the easiest way to introduce someone to fly fishing, introduce someone to uh, catching fish. You know, I, I've started both my boys that way and um, you know, they're, they're turning into very accomplished fly fishermen on their own now. But the, the bluegills and other panfish are, uh, they're very available to folks. They readily take a fly and it'll really accelerate the learning curve because in a very short period of time, you'll be able to present a fly to um, to a lot of fish, you'll catch a lot of fish. So you get your fly presentation techniques down pat. You'll get your fish landing skills uh, squared away, and it's it's a great teaching tool. And they're hardy too. Bluegill are very hardy fish compared to trout. Mm. So it's typically when you're new and you're trying to for the first time take a hook out of a fish's mouth and safely put it away. I'm pretty much uh, catch and release for everything. Uh, bluegill uh, are a little bit more hardy. Um, mm. You'd be surprised what they can withstand. You still try to get them in the water fast, but it gives that little bit more learning curve where you don't have mm -hmm. to rush as much and you can safely take the hook out of the mouth. And yeah, fish handling is definitely yeah another skill that's good to learn on them. But that that reminds me of a of a tip for our listeners to always carry a little uh, hemostat or forceps with you when you go bluegill fishing. I had one experience where I was taking a, somebody fishing and. Uh, she brought like a whole little kit, but she didn't have forceps. And immediately became, very quickly became apparent that it's going to be really hard to remove a, fit, you know, a hook from a bluegill um, without forceps because their mouths tend to be so small and they kind of suck it in. And depending on how you catch them, oftentimes they can take the fly deep really fast because they seem to suck the fly into their Absolutely. mouths. 
So definitely hemostats will help with that. Big time. Um, and, and barbless hooks are an mm -hmm. essential because of the fact that they take those hooks so deep sometimes mm -hmm. um, to, to limit the damage to the fish. You really just want to be able to reach in there with a pair of hemostats and slip the hook out as easily as possible to send them on their way. So there you go. Barbless hooks and hemostats are absolutely essential for your canfish. Um, and I think all three of us are in agreement here. We're all Indeed. nodding our yep. heads. <laughs> Nothing but barbless yeah. for everything. I feel bad yeah, that's if true too, there's yeah. a fish that ever, you just take a little bit too long to land, even with a bluegill. I, I treat them all with, <laughs> with respect and you want to let them be free and have another kid mm -hmm. come along and catch them. Oh, and one more thing. Talking about uh, handling the fish. Uh, one thing, if you have... If you don't have much experience catching panfish like bluegills and sunnies uh, in a pond, be very aware that the <coughs> top fin on the fish is going to be very sharp. <coughs> so um, you have to learn how to handle it. Uh, maybe there's videos. I'll see if I can find something. But essentially, it's pretty simple. Their, their top gills kind of flare up when you're handling them. And you want to kind of slide your hand from the head towards the tail to keep those very sharp fins down yeah. as you do it. So don't try to just kind of grab it from the top because you're going to poke yourself and it can be very sharp, very painful. So just kind of slide your hand from the head towards the tail. Like brushing its hair back. There you go. There that's, you go. A, that's a good way to put it. So that's, uh, that's important when you go out you know, or if you have a kid who's going to go fishing. Your kid is going to learn how to land a fish really fast, and then oftentimes they might try to grab it. They have to be taught that part. Oh. I, think. I had to be taught that one as a kid. Yeah, they need nice little, uh, when the barb hits you, you know it. Oh, yeah, yep. definitely. Well, this is a pleasure, guys, talking to you about the you know wonders of pinfish. It's February 1st now, so that makes me think that I mean, we're kind of having our warm water fishing days because boulder has been so warm but pretty soon we're going to have a runoff so i'm definitely going to be using this episode the tips that you shared um but yeah this is really fun thanks for talking i enjoyed it it's awesome and i should mention as well that uh we'll see which one comes out first but bart is going to be speaking to tom rosenbauer at the orvis podcast about uh, the same topic so um tom is uh, tom rosenbauer from orvis is an absolutely great interviewer. He's going to get a lot of information out of art, I'm sure, uh, that we might have not got here. So um, when you listen to this, take a look, see if the episode is already up. I'm going to bet that my episode is going to be up first, so you may have to wait a little bit of time. Huh. Um, but yeah, so if you're interested in more information about this, visit us on the web, tinkariusa.com forward slash podcast, and I'll put all the things that we touched upon here in terms of flies and uh, Bart's website and when the Orvis podcast is up, I'll put it in there as well. But thanks so much for listening and this is the Tenkata cast. Cheers. 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 Should I use that introduction? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Maybe share it at the end. At the end you can kind of say, here's something that we did and we made it all crack up. People will want to have it on their rotation on their iPhone. <laughs> what do you want us to talk about? Hello. What do you want us to talk about? Hello. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Nick Ogawa, also known as Takenobu. Check out his music at takenobumusic.com. We'll be posting links to any references we made in this podcast, such as Takenobu's music, on our website, www.tenkarausa.com forward slash podcast. 
And until next time on the Tenkara Cast.